we have been on a spiritual journey of faith lessons in the book of Exodus, or excuse me, in Genesis. We began in the book of Genesis, and we're looking at going through the major events and the faith lessons that we learn from those. What can we learn from the lives and lessons of our patriarchs? We began the book of Genesis, the study of book of Genesis, with a message titled, Where the serpent slithers, there's a slippery slope to sinking sand, acknowledging Satan's subtle hissing sound as Satan mesmerizes us into disobedience. You know, Satan's job, his role, his goal, his purpose is to supplant God in all things. And to do so, he wants to thwart God's greatest possession, greatest uh, creation, which is man, which is us. And so his purpose is to question basically everything that God has said. And even in the garden, when he, when God had told the uh, Adam and Eve that they were not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the, in the center of the garden, the tree of life, they were not to eat of that. Satan says, is that really what God meant? God knows that if you eat of that, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. And so We went through the book of Genesis and we were looking at that. And so now we begin in the book of Exodus and we had a message last week about the prisoners in paradise and we're going to continue on that. But the message, the title message for this service, this message is similar to that first one. It is the subtle surrender to the subservience of slavery. Say that multiple times. It's kind of indicative of the fact that Satan is kind of working with the Israelite people, actually drawing them away from God. And this is looking at the life of Jacob to Moses. So, but oftentimes we look in scripture and there are many times where there's this in-between land that we don't really know what's going on. Have you ever looked at this? You've, you've looked at scripture and it goes from one verse and the next one maybe several days or even years later. And you wonder what kind of, what kind of things happen in the in-between time. So we're going to be looking at the life in the in-between today. What is that life in between? What is that life in between passages? What is that life in between years? What is that life in between generations? You know, it's said that after three or four generations of Christians, especially in America, Christians begin to have more of a relationship with the institution of Christianity or the church than they do have a relationship with Christ. It brings, it needs to bring a new, fresh experience for each generation to continue in that further walk. Because what happens is over the period of generations, we begin to lose the fervor and the fire that our ancestors had in their walk with Christ. There's a certain falling away or subtle surrender to the subservience of slavery. There's this giving up. So what happens and how could we change that? We look at the subtle surrender to the subservience of slavery from Jacob to East Moses, but we understand that there is a pattern that seems to be always in play in that life in between, in the in-between living. There is a life between the first man and the flood. If you look in the Bible, you look at the first man, Adam, and you look at the flood with Noah, and there's life in between. What happened, what began with 
Adam and Eve, first man and first woman, walking in the cool of the evening with God in the garden, turns over a period of generations and many hundreds of years at the point of Noah when it came. And Bible says God saw that the inclinations of every heart was only evil all the time. How does it go? How do we go from walking in the cool of garden with God to the inclinations of every heart is only evil all the time? How does that happen? Or still yet, between Jacob and Moses, we're going to be looking at that today, but in one verse, it talks about Jacob and his family coming to Egypt, and the very next word, or very mixed next text, is where Jacob and all of his people have died, and a new king has come into Egypt. We find in Scripture, and if we look at the story, and we'll see this as we go on to the study, there's a period of 430 years from when J- Jacob entered Egypt to when the Egypt or the Israelites left Egypt. 430 years to the day, it says in Scripture, that to the day they left on the day 430 years later from when they entered. What happened in that 430 years? Many generations, probably 10 or more. What happens to the point when they do that? We'll be looking at that. There's a there's a gap of time between the deliverance from Egypt and their entering in the promised land. How many people know the number number of years from when they left Egypt to when they entered the promised land, Israelites? 40 years. What happened in that 40 years? A whole generation had to die off. What happened between Malachi and Matthew? Look in your Bible. Malachi is the last book in your Old Testament, right? Well, first book in the New Testament is what? How much time is in between Malachi and Matthew? Do you know? 400 years. 400 years of seemingly silence when God was speaking prior to that, speaking through and in the prophets. And then there was almost silence in the entrance of the New Testament with Christ, a new beginning. What's the difference, time difference between our original forgiveness and then when we fully surrender to Christ? It may happen all at once, but oftentimes not. What happens between in the in-between time of when we go to camp and have this great high experience and then come home and have to go to the office? <laughs> so we're going to be looking at that, but we're primarily going to be looking at the in-between, the in-between time from Jacob to Moses. And I'm going to look, we're going to look at, in in chapter 1, verse 5, it says, uh, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt, okay? So then verse 6 says, now Joseph and all of his brothers in that generation had died. So how many years is that? Probably not that many. But what had happened to him? The verses 6 and 7 says this. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So interesting thing. I want to show you something. This is a graph of the Hebrew population explosion. You see down in the lower left corner, you probably can't even see it that well. They entered Egypt with 70 people in their family. That's one, one reference says 75. But they entered Egypt with 70 people. 
And in 430 years, when they left Egypt, when they went out into the wilderness after they escaped Egypt, and they counted all of the men of 20 years and older, all of the men of 20 years and older were 603,000 some odd. If you factor in women and children, you have a minimum of 2 million Israelites, minimum of 2 million Israelites that are out in the wilderness wandering. So in 430 years, they've gone from 70 people to 2.1 million, maybe even more. That means that they tripled in population in Egypt, in captivity, in slavery. They tripled in population every 40 years, which is a generation. So every 40 years, they've tripled in population the Israelites have in slavery. Did you know that oftentimes around the world when the Christians are in persecution, it's when the Christian church multiplies? Interesting thought. Keep that in mind as we go. So we look at this. Then we go to Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 11. Then a new king, this is Egyptian king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. This is probably close to 400 years later. He says, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous. He goes on to say, if we, if we let them keep going, we need to drill, deal shrewdly with them. Or if the war breaks out, they'll war against us and defeat us. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. labor. So by the way, as I mentioned before, the title Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, the title Pharaoh means son of Ra, or and Ra was their son God. So the Pharaoh was thought to be the son of God. Interesting concept, but if you look at Egyptian history, the Pharaoh was believed to be the son of the creator or Ra God. They believed that the son was the creator of all things. Historical records revealed the building of this, these great cities, as it refers to Ramses and Pithom in, in Egypt, these great cities that we rest, uh, read about last week. It records all of these buildings. It records the histo historical records in Egypt, re record the building of pyramids and all kinds of things in Egypt, okay? Done at the hand, hands primarily of Egyptian slaves. How does this happen? How do the Egyptians or Israelites go from 70 people who come in to escape a famine to 2.1 million people who are slaves? Interesting thing is no record in the Egyptian historical records points to who was king specifically when the Israelites left Egypt because what, normal, what happened actually is the Egyptian culture just kind of died away when you no longer had 2.1 million slaves to do your bidding and they leave, everything stops. There are no kings around that are going to write about their own destruction. <laughs> it just, they don't do it, okay? So this is, this is kind of the history we have there of that. So let's look at life in Egypt for the Egyptian or for the Hebrews. And this is, this is leading up to what it's like for us, Okay. So there's a 430 subtle year subtle surrender to slavery from salvation to surrender. They went into the land. The Israelites went into the land at the invite of Joseph and the Pharaoh to come to it, to Egypt to escape the famine that was in their land. Remember that? 
And what did they do when they got there? They were given the most prosperous land, the most fertile land to raise their livestock on. And the Egyptian pharaoh said, how about if you become my employees, you can watch over my livestock as well. So they came into a really good situation. Not only did they get land, they got a place to settle. They got a place to escape from the famine. They were given food. They were also given employment. But what happens when after they signed on to that employment? What was supposed to be a short amount of time, as we talked about last week, the sojourning, sojourning into a foreign land, was supposed to be there for only a short time to to, uh, escape the misfortune of the famine. They settled in and they made that their home. They became comfortable and complacent. Nobody knows when that happens. Nobody knows when they chose to settle down for comfort. Nobody knows when you begin drifting away, except when you look up and find out how far away you are. Now, years ago, well, I hate to tell the story publicly because it's embarrassing, but a friend of mine from college and I decided we were going to one spring break go to Florida. Oh, man, you know the stories of Florida. Well, you don't know this one. We were going to hitchhike down to Florida and back, hitchhike down to Key West, the very last key of the Florida Keys, and hitchhike back to Greenville, Illinois. And so we got down to Florida, the Key West, the very last key, and we were on our way back, and we came in between uh, Marathon Key and um, Plantation Key, and it was it was getting to be nighttime, and and so we decided we were going to camp out for the night on the beach off of the key. And so we put our sleeping bags down by the beach and woke up in the morning. We decided we're going to take a swim in the Atlantic Ocean. Wouldn't this be so fun? So we began to swim in between the two keys where the causeway and the going in there. Now the current flows from the Gulf of Mexico into the Atlantic Ocean. You kind of get where I'm going. We look up a little bit later, and we find that we are about two or 300 yards off of the key. We had drifted away. The current had pulled us out and fighting to get back, pray, you know, praying that God will get us back, you know, kind of like that movie. Um, we prayed that God would get us back, and we swam as well as we could. Well, I, I, thankfully, I made it. But anyway, what it goes to tell me, tell us is that if we do not actively move forward, we're going to be drifting backwards. And that's what we find with the people of Israel and us oftentimes. We become complacent and comfortable if we aren't actively moving forward, even now in our relationship with Christ. If we are not actively moving forward in our relationship with Christ, looking for new continual blessings of God then we're going to drift backwards. And the Israelites had become comfortable and complacent. They began to serve other areas of culture. They fit, it began to fit into their culture. Does that sound familiar? They began to see the other gods of the culture. They saw, they, they saw the foreign gods of pleasure, and they saw the people of Egypt worshiping these foreign gods, even laying sacrifices down to these gods of pleasure. And we will look at that when we look at the plagues coming up. Um, just a little heads, head up, heads up. Every one of the plagues 
that God er, administered to the people of Egypt were in direct confrontation to one of the Egyptians' gods. We'll look at that as we come up later on. But anyway, they began to feel comfortable and serve those gods. Then they slowly began to give in to these foreign gods. They began to get complacent in their life of slavery. They were fat and watered. (laughs) They had everything they needed. In fact, what do we hear when they're out in the wilderness and they're grumbling, which they did a lot. We remember when we were back in Egypt sitting around pots of meat with garlic and leeks and onions. Oh my. They remembered the good times and they became comfortable in that. After generations, they began to quit fighting that new life. What began as employment became slavery. The Pharaoh said, well, if you did this, you can do this. I'll add this to your job. It's kind of like quotas, you know. Hmm. You got this quota. Well, you did that so well. That's awesome. Let me give you three more things to do. Oh, by the way, you got to make more bricks. Oh, wait a minute. You've got to get your own dirt and straw. So they began to give into that. They, after generations, they didn't even know the life of freedom. It's kind of like, like welfare mentality. Now I remember substituting in a school in Peoria, Illinois, and it was a fifth grade class, and we were looking at math, and, and one of the kids just didn't want to learn it at all. And I said, what are you going to do for a job? I said, this is going to be directly, <clears throat> directly related to your jobs when you get out, I said, what are you going to do for a job when you get out of school? He says, I'm not going to get a job. I'm going to be on welfare like my mom. So what happens is we become comfortable in our lifestyle. We get to the point after generations and generations, we don't know any different life because we don't know what it was like 10 generations before. And many generations later, they had no desire to leave their slavery. We never intend to drift away from our first love. We never intend to drift away from that first love of God. As Revelation talks about, you've left your first love. I remember my first love, <laughs> puppy love. It was camp time. And, and she and I vowed that we would write each other every day. And we did for the first three days. Um, and then other things happen and you go on. And sooner or later, you don't write back and forth anymore. And after a while, then, you know, that new girl at school is kind of cute. So we leave our first love for something else. We get drawn away and enticed, as scripture says. So what happened to the, what's happening to the individual, to us as individuals in American church? What began as a high in our relationship with Christ of being forgiven as sin the good intentions begin to drift away from our first love. We become comfortable and complacent like the Israelites. Life is good. We're forgiven. Everything's okay. We begin to serve other areas of culture, keeping up with the Joneses. We want to look like the best churches around. We want to look like the best followers of Jesus. And we begin to give in to the gods of pleasure or the gods of culture. We begin to try to look like society. Many generations later, we don't know what our ancestors had. Like I said, every generation needs to have a new and fresh experience with God, a new awakening. We can do a lot for our kids and bring them up, but every generation has to have an experience of their own to continue that. Otherwise, we don't want to leave that life of slavery. So what's God's lesson in this? First, 
we hear, we read in the scripture, and we'll read this later, that it was when God's people cried out that he heard their cry and he looked for a deliverer. It said they were found out, I mean, they got to a point where they were so down that they finally cried out to God after 400 years or roughly 400 years. God help us. Have we ever gotten to that point? Rhetorical question where we are so down in our relationship with Christ that we cry out to God and say, God, you have got to do something in me now. I pray that we do. Not because I'm praying for us to get down in the worst of things, but I'm praying that we will be get to a desperation point where we call out to God and say, God, you've got to do something in us now. You've got to reawaken us. God has placed us in positions like he did with Esther, who knows, for, but for such a time as this, God has brought you to this place. God brings his people into places and positions. You know, when he put the Israelites in the promised land, do you know why he put the Israelites in the promised land? Because everything in culture and in the world traveled through Israel at that time. The main highways, east and west and north and south, were going right through Egypt or right through Israel. And God wanted the Israelites in the very center of culture to influence everything that was going on there. He wanted them to influence commerce. He wanted them to influence politics. He wanted them to influence culture. He wanted them to influence the spiritual welfare. He wanted them to make his name known. As I've said before, if you look at scripture throughout, especially in these passages, you will find God saying this over and over. He will say he's doing such a thing because so that the world may know that I am God, so that the Egyptians may know that I am God, so that you may know that I am God. God has put us in a place, in a center of our culture, in positions for such a time as this because he wants his people to influence culture, not the other way around. And yet when people turn, God's people turn their back on him, God works to protect and save his people. He hears them when they cry out to him. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. He says it over and over and over again in his word. And he says it to us. God is causing his people to increase in the face of oppression and persecution. We talked a little bit about being made of fun of and stuff like that. You know, we are under persecution in the American church. We don't realize it. But if you look around, the the church is being ridiculed like nothing else. And we stand for it. One of the songs we said talked about speaking the name of Jesus, speaking Jesus into the world. God has put us in a place in the center of culture, wants, wants us to be in the influence of everything around, in our businesses, in our schools, teachers, in our civic business and political environment. God wants us to be in the very center of things to influence the world for the right so people will see Jesus in us. God also uses the plans of evil to bless his people. As I spoke last week, I think it was for in all things, God works together for the good of those who are called according to, and, and working according to his purpose for those that he has chosen, Romans eight twenty eight. 
God wants to use us. And even if there's evil meant, meant against us, God is going to use that for the good of us as we glorify him and do him. But God wants us to return to that oneness with him. He wants us to surrender ourselves and come back into full relationship with him. He wants us to have those experiences over and over again. He wanted the Israelites to do that. They were really comfortable in Egypt, even though they were in slavery. It wasn't until the very end when they were so... Uh, beaten down that they cried out to God and God gave them a deliverer, a special deliverer by the name of Moses, which means drawn out, one who is drawn out. I wonder if God is looking for you. God is looking for a few good men, title, movie. I put in there end women. By the way, we don't want to exclude anybody. But God is looking for a few good women, men and women to stand in the gap, to rise up and say, I'm going to let God use me to influence this culture. I'm going to wait upon the Lord to cleanse me and purify me and use me. I want a new experience with Christ. I want a fresh experience with Christ. I want an ongoing and renewed experience with Christ over and over and over. Paul said, I die to self daily. I wonder how about you? You know, God's looking for leaders. He was, when he was, when he had the leaders in the Bible in the Old Testament, I mean, he looked for Noah. I love this. Almost the next verse after he said, the inclination of every heart was only evil. All the, it said he saw Noah and Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, are you going to be that person? Are you going to be the one that stands up and says, you know what? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want that experience with Christ. I want that over and over and continually. I pray that we do. And as we look at this book of Exodus, as we go through this, we're going to see God delivering his people. Hallelujah. By the way, did you know that he can do it again? <laughs> he did. There was a guy named Jesus, and there's a guy named Andy and Mike, and Jeremiah, and there's a lady named Kathy. God is calling every one of us to stand up, receive the blessings, but also receive a new experience. Who knows? But that for such a time as this, God has called you to this place. Would you pray with me? Father, we look at these lessons and we see how the Israelite people have fallen away, walked away from you. We see in the story and we read in the stories as they traveled even in the wilderness, they began to grumble against you. And we think, how can that be? How could anybody that saw what they saw, the deliverance they saw, how could they begin to grumble? <laughs> oh, yeah. Then there's us. Father, I need a fresh experience. We need a fresh experience. We need to be your people who are chosen for this time, your chosen people, your royal nation, your holy people belonging to God. We need to be your light shining in a world of darkness. We need to be here for such a time as this, and we need to be sent in the crossroads of life. Would you do that for us, Father? And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.